Amen. I want to invite you to join me in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Uh, Today we continue our series in Exodus. Should be wrapping this up around uh, the end of February, and we'll uh, go on to something else. But um, uh, but today we arrive at the story of uh, the golden calf. And so we'll be reading Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 10. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, And bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage today. Pray, Lord, that as we meditate on this today as we reflect, as we consider this story, we would understand our own story a little bit better, understand our human nature, understand just uh, some changes we may need to make in our own lives. And uh, Father, that you would speak truth to us this morning in your spirit, by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. So growing up, uh, how many of you love, like you, you prefer to go to sleep with a little white noise in the room, maybe a fan. How many of you like a fan going on in the room? I see that those hands, that's good. And how many of you like to have a little music going on in the room, okay? So some of you like to play a little music, have it going on. I like to have that. My, uh, my boys like to have that. In fact, the two things they say to me before they go to bed every night, Dad, uh, are you going to read the devotion? And then number two, can we listen to music, okay? And so I normally say as long as you listen to worship music, that's fine. But I didn't do that growing up, okay? So y'all, they're probably uh, watching. But anyway, um, so growing up, I loved to listen to music as well. And I would have music playing. Sometimes it would be Christian music. uh, But uh, went through a spell where I would listen to country music uh, when I was going to sleep. And my favorite song to go to sleep to was In the Thunder Rolls by Garth Brooks, okay? The Thunder Rolls by Garth Brooks. And the reason I like to listen to that song, of course, because they had thunder, and you know, there's no better time to go to sleep than when there's just a light rain, some rolling thunder, uh, you know, not one of those violent storms that scares you, but just one of those that kind of lulls you to sleep, okay? Some of you are starting to doze off right now, so I'll stop talking about it. 
Uh, we've still got like 30 minutes to go here. But um, so, yeah, I would listen to that song. And one night I just happened to think, you know, I had the mind to listen to the actual words that go to the song, uh, to hear what the song was about. And if you know what the song is about, you're like, oh, okay. Um, so the song, of course, is about this guy who's being unfaithful to his wife. He's on the other side of town. It's the middle of the night. He's somewhere he never should have been, and he's driving back uh, home, and uh, all the lights are on across town, so, so, so on. Okay, so he's driving back. And, uh, of course, his, his wife is concerned about his safety and stuff like that. And here's the resolution of the story. And I'll, I'll resist the urge to sing it to you. Uh, but it says, she's waiting by the window when he pulls into the drive. She rushes out to hold him, thankful he's alive. But on the wind and rain, a strange new perfume blows. And the lightning flashes in her eyes. And he knows that she knows. And the thunder rolls and the thunder rolls. When we come to Exodus 32, this is the part of the story in Exodus where a strange new perfume blows. That, I mean, that's, it, it sounds funny to say it that way, but that is exactly what is going on here. There's a reason in the Bible, there's a reason in the Bible that our relationship with God is often presented as a marriage-like relationship, and uh, our unfaithfulness to him is cast as adultery and things of that nature. They, they have had a wonderful uh, relationship uh, up to this point in many ways. That there's been grumbling, there's been uh, some obvious sin and things like that. Uh, but there's been so many beautiful moments where God uh, sends his servant Moses in. He brings them out. They, they go across the Red Sea. God is so faithful to them. He's so caring of them. He's so loving towards them. And they come up to Mount Sinai. They come up to Mount Sinai, and God enters into this covenant relationship with them through the Ten Commandments. This covenant relationship with them through the Ten Commandments. And then he tells them how to build a house for him to dwell in their midst a house, a tabernacle, so that he might be their God, that they might be his people, in this beautiful description of the tabernacle and so on. And then we come to chapter 32, and Israel turns from God. And so today we're going to learn three, tr three truths we learn about ourselves from the Exodus story. Three truths we learn about ourselves from the Exodus story. Uh, because I think that their story is given for our benefit, okay? So as we, part of the purpose of reading stories like this is not just so that we'll have historical knowledge, but so that we'll know that something of what they went through and what they're dealing with, we deal with as well on a regular basis. It's not just relegated to ancient history that doesn't have any effect upon us. Uh, this gives us insight into who we are, which is why Jesus so often told parables and told stories. Uh, but the Old Testament is there for our instruction to learn who God is, to learn who we are as human beings, and to learn what this world is about. And so today uh, we learn three truths about ourselves from the Exodus story. First, we have idols and our idolatry makes us foolish. We have idols, and our idolatry makes us foolish. Moses was on top of the mountain, and he's talking to God. Uh, below, the people grew impatient. They just felt like something needed to be happening, it seems. Uh, you know, whatever happened to Moses, we don't know. Uh, they said, you know, this, uh, this Moses fellow, we're don't, not real sure what happened to him, and so let's take matters into our own hands. Rather than waiting for a word from the Lord, 
Rather than waiting for a revelation from God, uh, they instead dove right in to do what seemed right to them. And so uh, they come to Aaron and they say, hey, Aaron, uh, build us a a golden calf that we might worship uh, the gods. And without any sense of hesitation, without any indication of hesitation, he he does so. He he says, hey, bring your your earrings from your, your daughters, your sons, and your wives, and I will begin to form a golden calf. And so he took a tool and he began to fashion a golden calf and when they when he finished fashioning this golden calf listen to what he said listen to what they said then they said verse 4 these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt and they worshiped the golden calf but then Aaron said okay let's celebrate a festival to Yahweh they brought burnt offerings, they brought fellowship offerings, and then they worshiped Yahweh. Why is this? Why, why would they do something? I mean, after all that the Lord had done for them, and to come to chapter 32, and you have to wait. How many of you, you, you struggle with patience, okay? Uh, just to wait. Uh, you just feel like, okay, if nothing's happening, if it's quiet, you get nervous, and you do something, okay? Probably a lot of us that we feel like we have to have noise in the room all the time, okay? We, we always feel like something needs to be at that. They just couldn't wait any longer. They had to take matters into their own hands. And so what is the reason for this? What, what is behind all of this? God gives his analysis, which I'm going to take a, a step out on a limb here and say that he's right. Um, it says in chapter 32, verse 9, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. They are a stiff-necked people. Israel has called this a lot of time. If you're familiar, if you read through the Bible, uh, Israel is called this a lot through the Bible. This is the first time they're called a stiff-necked people in the Bible. It's not really an insult that we throw around a lot today. Um, may, I don't know, maybe you were trash talking this past week and you threw out, you know, that someone was stiff-necked. Uh, but uh, not really something we say a lot today. So what, what does it mean that there are stiff-necked people? In an agrarian culture that they were in, farm animals would sometimes stiffen their necks in order to avoid the yoke of the master. So, uh, so this is a kind of stubbornness. This is a kind of resistance to the master. And so in this situation, it's a metaphor for, hey, God is saying, okay, here's the vows, here's the stipulations for what it's going to mean for us to dwell in relationship with one another. Here's the direction we're going. Here's the kind of God I am. Here's the kind of people you're to be. I am holy. You are to be holy. And Israel was resistant to do things God's way. They wanted to do things their own way and take matters into their own hands. And you can see how... uh, this might relate to us just a little bit. We, we tend to struggle with that as well. So after spending hundreds of years in a pagan culture with numerous gods to worship, um, a polytheistic culture where there's so many gods to worship um, in different ways, Israel had become set in its idolatrous ways and their relationship to God had basically become a ball and chain kind of relationship that they no longer enjoyed, and so they turned uh, to worship uh, a golden calf. Rather than giving exclusive worship to God, they worshiped God alongside other gods. So I want you to think about this. It it wasn't that 
they totally walked away from Yahweh, okay? They're still uh, driving back across town, so to speak, okay? They they still have Yahweh. It's just that now they have other gods as well. And rather than giving exclusive worship to God, to the true God, to the Lord God, they're worshiping him alongside these other gods, I want you to think about this. In Exodus, we just spent the last several chapters receiving instructions on building a tabernacle. God, what was the point of this? God wants to be with his people. Think about how beautiful that is. What what a wonderful truth that is that we should never take for granted that God wants to be with his people. He wants to be with Israel. He makes these plans. He gives all of these instructions for the building of this tabernacle so that he can come and dwell in their midst. And the very next chapter, the very next chapter, you would expect them to start to work on the tabernacle. Instead, what we find is a story of them constructing a golden calf to worship God. It's amazing. Our problem is not that we are not wanted by God. As we saw last week, God wants to be with us. He desires us. He pursues us. He brings heaven down to us in the tabernacle in His Son and the Holy Spirit. But our problem is that we've turned our eyes from God, from Christ, and we've looked full into the face of an old flame. We've looked and our affections, our love has become someone else's other than God's. Nobody, I want you to hear me this morning, nobody loves you like God loves you. It's impossible. No no matter what we may feel in our uh, feelings and, and so on in our heart, nobody loves you like God loves you. He loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you on the cross. But we have a lot to learn from Adam and Eve, from Israel. Adam and Eve put in paradise. God lays everything out before them in paradise, an opportunity to be with him and one another in a perfect, harmonious relationship. But they turned from God. They became fascinated with the fruit. They gave more weight to the serpent's words than to God's own words. And I think we struggle with the same idea today. We put more weight on the words of the world that come from the serpent, that come from the things of this world, rather than the word of God, just receiving his word, being faithful to his word, and being obedient to our Savior. Pouring affection out on the idol, by the way, as we see in this passage, causes us to act foolishly. If I was a little bit more edgy preacher, I might say it, it causes us to act in stupid ways. Okay, that they look, look at verse 6. It says, uh, So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So imagine this scenario. God tells them to build a house so I can dwell among you. And I, you can be my people. I can be your God. Very next thing we see is they build a golden calf. And they say, this is the God that led us out of Egyptian bondage. Let's worship him. And oh, by the way, let's also observe fellowship offerings and burnt offerings and worship Yahweh as a special festival to him as well. And then let's go to bed and let's wake up, let's eat and drink, and let's indulge in revelry. This is the life of Israel. It is a living contradiction. It is living hypocrisy in their midst. In the book of Proverbs, 
In the book of Proverbs, there's this character called the fool. There's a couple of different characters in Proverbs. There's a fool, and then there's Lady Wisdom. And quite often throughout uh, Proverbs, these two are contrasted. And the fool is treated on this uh, pragmatic level, looking at the behaviors of the fool. Here, here's what a fool does. Here's how a fool acts and, and so on. And, and then here's how Lady Wisdom functions and acts as well. And you see this contrast throughout Proverbs. I, I believe here in Exodus 32, we go a layer deeper and we see the root cause of such foolishness. And it's idolatry. It's when we give our hearts to another. And we orient our lives around multiple things rather than centering our whole lives on Christ and on the things of God. So our, I think our invitation this morning is rather than being a stiff-necked people, rather than uh, constantly resisting the, uh, the leadership and the guidance of the Lord, we submit to him. We uh, give ourselves to him. Here, here's the thing. The thing about being stiff-necked is quite often we don't realize that we're doing it. Okay, Because we're going down a certain path. We've got uh, certain habits, certain uh, behaviors in our lives that we, we just uh, mindlessly go through every day. We've been doing it for years and years and years. They have been committing idolatry for years and years and years. And so at some point, you just grow numb to the fact that this is life, this is the way we live, it's fine. Everybody's doing it, everybody's worshiping this golden calf. And it really takes uh, the Holy Spirit to convict us and wake us up to the fact that, hey, we shouldn't be going this direction. But first, you've got to identify the fact that, okay, here's these behaviors, here's these habits, here's these things going on in my life that are not right, that do not bring honor and glory to God. Turn over with me, if you would, uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, this was a little rabbit I chased in the first service, not in my notes, and why not let's chase it again. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Just got finished talking about the hall of faith in the Bible. All of these heroes of the faith and what that looks like, what true saving faith looks like. Um, and then you come to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and listen to this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles Everything that hinders and the sin. In other words, there, there may be things in your life that are not necessarily in and of themselves sinful, but they just keep you from running the race that God has placed before you. They just slow you down. It's a weight around you. And they slow you down. And so I think one of the things of discipleship is recognizing, okay, here, here's behaviors in my life, here's a mindset in my life, here's habits, here's uh, certain words I, I say, here's a certain attitude that I have, here's certain actions that I take on a regular basis, and these things are wrong, these things are a hindrance or they're sinful, one or the other. Like you're never going to get rid of it until first you identify those things. And quite often we just put things on autopilot. We don't stop and examine ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirror. But first you have to identify it. And then second, guess what? You have to decide. You have to have a change of mind and a change of heart where at some point you're like, okay, I, I can't keep drifting. I can't keep going this way anymore. I've got to make a real change in my life to move in a different direction. So you have a change of mind and a change of heart that no longer is this going to be tolerated in your life. No longer is this 
hindrance or sin going to be tolerated in your life anymore. You're just not okay with it anymore. Maybe it, there was a point in time where it wasn't a hindrance, but now it is. Uh, maybe uh, there's a point in time where you didn't realize it was sin, but now you do. And so, what does it say? Take off three. You've got to take action. So not only identify it, not only have a change of mind and change of heart. Number three, you've got to take action, and that's a picture of repentance. That's what repentance looks like. What golden calves do you have in your life? Things that you've given your heart to, your affections to, and your love to. Second, we are all at odds with God and need a mediator to make us right. We're all at odds with God and need a mediator to make us right. So what just happened in this story? Um, what just happened? We read the Ten Commandments earlier. This is like, if you remember, these are like stipulations or another way to think of it, vows. These are conditions of fidelity to God. Okay, if you're really going to be his people, here are conditions of fidelity, of faithfulness to him. If you're living out these things, you're embodying a faithfulness to God. If you turn from these things, then you're unfaithful to God. And so what we are seeing in Exodus 32 really is a moment of unfaithfulness. It really is a strange new perfume blowing through in Exodus. That's what is happening here. They're turning from God, we're witnessing in live time Israel breaking their vows. Before we get into the second part, I want you to notice here. Actually, let's get into the second part, and then then we'll look at it. Down in verse eleven, um, you'll remember where I stopped reading. Things looked grim. God basically said, "I'm done with them. Leave me alone for a minute. Let my anger burn, and now I'm going to wipe them off the face of the planet." Okay, you ever been there where you're like, you know what, just give me a minute. Just let me go and, and let my anger burn for a minute, and then I'll return in the moment. But w- when God said he's going to return in the moment, he's like, I'll make you a nation. I'm going to wipe everybody else out. Um, but here's what Moses does. In verse 11, it says, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Just imagine saying this to God. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, I can tell you, you can have a good theological conversation for hours about how this all works. How does the sovereignty of God work? Didn't God foreordain all this to happen? And, and why does it say that God relented and all that? And, and you can really get down into the weeds of it. And believe me, those are fun conversations to have. But I don't want us to miss the main, one of the main points here, which is very simply this. When you pray and you speak to God, He listens and He is responsive to our prayers. 
We don't pray because we think that God doesn't listen. We don't pray because we think it doesn't matter. We pray because we know that it does matter. We have this conviction in our hearts that God hears us and that God is responsive to what we say. And we're not going to bring in the other Garth Brooks song and enter prayer at this moment, okay? All right, we'll just keep on moving. But the reality is we do pray and we do know that God cares and that he listens. So how does this dynamic work, though? I want you to pay attention to what Moses says. Moses prays a prayer, and what, what is Moses after? He's after God's reputation among the nations. God, if you do this, what will the Egyptians think of you? He brings up the character of God and the promise of God. God, don't you know that you promised your descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel forever, this land? You, you gave this promise to them. Aren't you going to be true to your word? He brings up God's character and he brings up God's mission that he is to carry out. When we pray, quite often, it's, it's real easy to fall into a very uh, short-sighted, narrow idea of what we ought to talk to God about. And it's, I need this, I want that, and this would be nice if I could have this. And that. But the question is, how do you pray uh, with God's overall mission in mind? And how do you pray with God's overall character in mind? I want you to think of your prayers more like uh, someone on a battlefield where there's, there's warfare going on and you're calling back to home base for resources. Why? Because you want to honor uh, the kingdom for which you're fighting and you want to fulfill the mission that you've been given. And you're probably not going to call back to home base and, and order a Dr. Pepper, right? Much as you might want it, much as that might taste good, as much as that might feel good, you're probably not going to ask for those things. You're going to ask for things necessary to fulfill the mission that you've been given and bring honor and glory to your country. That's what you're going to ask for. That's how our prayers ought to be, folks. Our prayers ought to be, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And does he pray for daily bread? Yes, he prays for sustenance. But folks, the the goal of the prayer is ultimately for God's name to be hallowed and for his mission to be fulfilled. And that's why you've heard me quote that prayer over and over and over and over again since I've been here. Moses is interceding on behalf of God's people. And I want you to know, though, that our prayers matter. Uh, the, The main idea, though, behind all of this, I believe, is to present Moses as a mediator for God's people. Moses is a mediator for God's people. They are now estranged. Israel's been unfaithful to the Lord that they are estranged. And Moses stands before God. He stands before him and he works through his words and through what he says to bring the two together. This is the main idea. They have been separated from God by their sin, by their idolatry, fully deserving for God to walk away, fully deserving for full judgment. But Moses comes before God and does what he can to make things right and to make peace between God and his people. It's kind of like the tabernacle. You remember a week or two ago that we were talking about the tabernacle? I guess it was last week, Uh, we were talking about the tabernacle, and we said, you know, the the tabernacle uh, works like kind of a concept of the true tabernacle in heaven. That that is the reality. That is the reality. And uh, so it's kind of like a concept. The, The New Testament calls it a shadow 
or a copy of the true tabernacle in heaven. I believe Moses serves in very much the same way. He's like a concept. He's an idea. He's a, a shadow of the true mediator who is to come. Turn back over with me to the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2, uh, it begins uh, by talking about prayers and petitions that are to go up to God on behalf of all people. And then he gets specific for kings, for those in authority and so on, that they may live quiet lives in godliness and holiness. But then he says in verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So who is Jesus? He is the real mediator between God and man. First, I just want you to note that God's desire is for all people to be saved. That's what he desires. Everybody to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If you are here this morning and you are breathing air and you are a human being, okay, if the last time you tried to log on uh, to the website and get into account, it said, take this test to see if you're not a robot, and you took the test and you passed, if that's you this morning, okay, then you are somebody, you are somebody, you are a human being created in the image of God, and no matter what your background is, God wants you to be saved, to be delivered. And he's given you a choice as to whether or not you will repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ or you'll continue going the way that you're going. He wants all people to be saved. And so what did God do? He sent his son. He sent his son. So don't think of this as God the Father is up in heaven and begrudgingly uh, just accepts uh, the proposal from his son uh, to let folks into heaven. That's not how this works. God the Father takes action in sending His Son to earth because God so loved the world. He desires nobody to perish. None of us, not a soul in this room, does He desire to perish. And so Jesus comes into this world and He leads us on a new exodus. Just like Moses went in to Egypt when they were in slavery and led them out, we are enslaved to our sins and the consequences of our sins. We're enslaved to sin, death, And the devil and Jesus comes. And what does it say? He gave his life as a ransom. Gave his life as a ransom in order to bring us to God. That we might have a relationship with God. The question is, have you trusted in Christ? Have you followed the King Jesus? I fear fear that, and I've said this many times before that it's so easy to be lulled into a spiritual sleep here with churches on every street corner, hearing uh, the Bible taught week after week, having uh, so many resources at our disposal, it's easy to fall into a spiritual slumber and not pay attention to where you are spiritually. I think it's dangerous. It's dangerous for me. It's dangerous for all of us uh, to fall asleep at the will, so to speak, and not pay any attention to where we stand before God. Do you know Jesus this morning? Are you in a good relationship with him this morning? They came out of Egypt, but Egypt had not come out of them. We come to number three. We come to number three. We're all lost and must seek 
the Lord for counsel. We're all lost and must seek the Lord for counsel. So uh, back in Exodus chapter 33, towards uh, about midway through chapter 33, you come to verse 7. And it says in uh, Exodus 33, 7, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. So later on, the tabernacle is going to be called the tent of meeting, and it's going to be right in the middle of the camp, but uh, hadn't set all that up yet. So this is just a basic tent cast outside of the camp. And whenever Moses, verse 8, went out uh, to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. Then the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now, a few things to take in mind. First, why did they go out uh, to the tent? It says, verse 7, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go out to the tent. In other words, they're going out there for counsel. They're going out there for advice. They're going out there for guidance. Uh, Rather than trusting in their own uh, sense of wisdom, uh, they want to lean on the wisdom of God. They want to be guided by the Lord, and so they are uh, intentional in the life of Israel at this point, going out to the tent and seeking guidance from the Lord. But it says that Moses, when he would speak to the Lord, he would speak to him face to face as with a friend. We should not think of this in a literal sense. Of course, God doesn't have a literal face as we do. And also, a little bit later on, verse 20, chapter 33, verse 20, it says, but he, which is what we'll look at next week, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So what does he mean that they're talking face to face as with a friend? It's speaking of intimacy and accessibility to God. So uh, he had real access, he had direct access to the throne room of heaven to be able to speak to God. And there's this level of intimacy between them where he is able to speak to God as to a friend. And so Moses would do this regularly. How does this translate into our situation today? On the one hand, obviously we want to honor God. We want to be reverent. We want to be respectful. We don't want to take God lightly. But at the same time, we are invited in to have a relationship that's a kind of friendship with God. A kind of friendship with God where we are uh, intimate in that sense. The question is today, do you take time to speak with God? I want to close out by asking us to turn to John chapter 15. We'll we'll wrap it up with John chapter 15 today. This is one time Jesus was very explicit in his words about being his friend. It says in John chapter 15, this famous passage about the vine and the branches... He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Think about that. Abide, dwell, remain, stay in my love. What does that mean? He explains, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. This is like God loving us by giving us commands that are meant to give us life, 
Okay, meant to give us life. Christ gives us his word to give us life. And so long as we abide in those words, we dwell in them, we obey those words, we are receiving his love. We are abiding in his love. It's only when we turn away from that that we're rejecting the love of Christ. But verse 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Just a word about that. His commands are meant to stir joy in our lives. Never meant to weigh us down. So many times we talk about the Ten Commandments, we talk about the commands of Christ, and we talk about them in a negative fashion, but the reality is they're meant to bring joy to our lives if we follow them. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from the Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. What's this command? That we're to love one another. As the Father has loved Christ, he has loved us, What is he telling us to do? Love one another insofar as we're faithful to that. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, I call you friends. That doesn't mean just if you like Jesus, he calls you a friend. It means that those who come to Jesus in faith and they are devoted to Jesus, they're committed to Jesus, and they follow after Jesus, the Bible says Jesus calls them friends. My question as we close this morning is, are you a friend of God? We sing that song, don't we? I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. You've called me friend. But my question is, are you a friend of God? Just as you observe your life, as you observe uh, your mind, your heart, your words, your actions, as you take examination this morning, inventory, would you say that you're a friend of God? Are you someone who knows God and God knows you? Sparrow hasn't closed our eyes this morning. If you would like to make a decision, I invite you to do so this morning. You might realize, going back to what we were talking about earlier, just as you really begin to take a look in the mirror, you realize, okay, I've got some hindrances. I've got some sins that need to be dealt with. And I want to deal with them this morning. I invite you to respond. Maybe you want to trust in Christ. Maybe you want to follow through believer's baptism. Maybe you want to come join the church. Maybe you just want to come kneel at the altar and pray. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, pray you'll respond right now. Actually, Gracious Father, thank you so much for your love and your mercy. I thank you for your grace. And I pray for anybody here, Father, who doesn't know you, they'd make a decision right now to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.